So yes, on record. Let's go. <laughs> Hella on record, honey. I'm ready. Let's do this. First of all, I just want to say thank you, okay? Because I came to see Lavender Men the other day. I think um, it was last Saturday. Okay. And, um, you know, I just moved to Los Angeles. So I am, you know, integrating myself into the theater scene. You know, yeah. New York is one thing, but like LA is um, a completely different world. And right. I feel really honored to have been able to you know, witness your work mm. and for that to be, I, I think this, your play might've been the third piece that I've seen in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. And so far, oh my gosh, I did not know that LA was popping like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. you know, the funny thing is I'm, you know, and, and I have a, a, a dear um, chosen family mother whose mm -hmm. name is Cece Suazo. I love her madly. And Cece says, honey, you fierce and you, you, you are, your theater training and experience comes through your life in New York. And that permeates the experience that people have of you when you are on stage and also how you deal with things off stage. You know, I went to undergrad back East. I went to Princeton for undergrad in, from 2004 to 2008. And I had never been, well, that's not entirely true. I had been to the East Coast once before, um, but I hadn't really spent an extensive period of time specifically in the tri-state area. Yeah. And so this was my first time on what we know as the East Coast. And I have to tell you too, have spent some really formative years when I was finding and defining myself as a young adult on the East Coast, really formulated my sensibilities about who I am, the kind of work that I wanna make, the people that I need in the room to make it with and how we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And then I graduated in 2008 in the height of the recession the great recession that some people are young enough not even to know existed, you know, which is frightening that that much time has passed in the world. Well, for those who are listening that don't know what it was, let me just tell you. Um, in the year or so before that, in the housing boom, which y'all can Wikipedia all of this, um, it's frightening to me that I'm like this kind of you know, sort of lay historian of recent history, but, you know, be that as it may, that was, you know, almost 20 years ago now. So yeah, um, there was a housing boom that burst for various reasons, including subprime loans. And y'all can read about that. It sort of sets the stage for a lot of the financial problems we're in now. Mm -hmm. I remember in those years before the recession in 2005, 2006, you'd have these young strapping boys, not just white boys, people of color too, hair slicked back, first Brooks Brothers shirt, mm -hmm. beautiful slacks, lined up in recruitment lines to go work for Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. That was the great dream of the era, was to become uh, you know, a, a, an entry-level trader at Goldman Sachs. 
and they were just plucking these boys out of the field of Princeton. They would line up, they'd just pluck them, just pop, pop, pop. It seemed like everybody was working in finance in some capacity or other. And that had a, a great impact, I believe, on the types of theater that were made and the ways that theater was made. Mm. You had a, um, quiet as it's kept, you had a mini sort of investment in people of color at the time. There were a couple of internships um, and fellowships at that time, which were geared very specifically towards um, people of color. And, and they helped make a lot of careers, you know, so some of some of the folks that we are seeing now came up during that era, including um, two of my two of my undergraduate colleagues and, and great friends, Liliana Blaine Cruz and Brandon Jacobs Jenkins graduated either one or two years before me. And to think what a year can do, when I graduated, there was nothing. All the theaters were closed. I remember I had applied to the, um, I had applied to the, um, the artistic director internship at McCarter Theater. Mm-hmm. And Grace Shackney brought me into the office and she said, um, I didn't have the heart to send you a formal rejection letter because you mean so much to us here at McCarter, because I'd been very active in the town and gown engagement with their work and they were invested in mine. And they said, we, you mean too much to us, so we can't reject you that way, but we cannot take your application. Mm. Um, there's no funding. I said, what should I do, Grace? And she said, go home. Go home and when you and when, and when this all blows over, because it will one day, New York will still be there. And that was a, the first of a couple of times that I went home. Mm-hmm. And every time I went home, a little piece of my heart broke mm-hmm. because it was like this great um, feeling of uh, inadequacy that I did something wrong, you know, that I wasn't able to sustain myself in the field. Something wasn't happening. And that really affected my next set of decisions, which, you know, I started going into tutoring. And um, I remember one night I was coming home on the bus from tutoring and, and we were marauded by an armed gentleman on the bus and uh, my life flashed before me. And there I was 320 pounds, you know, was in early stages of talking about circulation loss and the inevitability of, of amputation due to diabetes. And I said, what has happened to your life? Mm-hmm. Who are you? What are you doing? And I said that minute, I'm getting out of here. And I applied to uh, a couple of MFA programs where I knew I had some, I had some favor, you know, people knew me and liked me and knew of my work. 
And I was very fortunate at the time to get into Northwestern's MFA program. And part of it was I had been to the East Coast already. I knew it was going on in LA, but I hadn't been to Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, so I wanted to see what that scene was like. You know, and it was the best of times and the worst of times. I'll talk about the best of times first. You know, what it allowed me to do was find my performance art self because the people that outside of my, I I had some key allies and I I do want to go back to, I do want to go back to the Princeton folks too, but I want to say this, there was, that was a hotbed of creativity in Chicago. Chicago, 2014 to 2016. Mm. Those were some bad mamma jammas, as they used to say. You know, and I'm gonna say some names because I because it's it's worth hearing them. Melandi mm. Zondi, Mayfield Brooks, Lucky Stiff, Sophia Whites, you know, Will Arbery was there at the time. Mm. Um, who else was there? It was just a hotbed of, of creativity. I mean, just the intelligence and the fierceness and, 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 and the, the sheer gut and grit. And all of these people that I'm mentioning had some relationship to performance art specifically. Mm-hmm. And bridging the gap between theater and the avant-garde. Mm. And for me to absorb that and be educated by it, to be just rebaptized in it, was the great gift of my years in Chicago. Mm. I, I can't help but to chuckle at Chicago because so I graduated from high school in 2014 in Chicago. Mm. Chicago was one of the um, was one of the DePaul specifically was one of the mm-hmm. I was looking at. I ended up going to the new school, um, mm. and then spending some time at the Flea, which I know that there's you know and the Flea yes yes itself and you know to this point of like the the performance art in the avant garde. I'm I'm so fascinated um, by what 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 it unlocked in Mm. you. Well, I want to go back. I want to go back to Liliana and Brandon for a moment and and say that in my earliest of days, you know, and first of all, I want to just make sure people know, because we're in this podcast about Black theater. The two of them were then and remain now two of my great heroes in the American theater. We were in class together. We went to school together. And I want people to know that what they got and the careers that they have are completely a result of their brilliance and talent. Mm -hmm. I want people to know that time is everything in this business. And, And some people are able to align their talent with time And that affects when and how the public at large recognizes them. It doesn't take away from the fact that they were brilliant already. They were already there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it, and for those that are waiting to be seen, because ultimately mine is a tale of patience and perseverance, 
Just because you're not there yet or nobody's seeing you yet doesn't mean that you're not worthy of being seen and you still have to keep going. Because I look at what happened to me from 2008 to about 2012. I was a lot of my career was kind of on pause because the world had shut down. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sort of coming up from on different timeline from other people even though many folks don't realize that I'm a contemporary, just logistically even, in terms of like what year I was born with some of these folks that we're talking about. So I know that time plays a major role in when and how success and visibility work. And I've just stayed in the game. But I wanna tell you a little story about Liliana and, and Brandon, and I tell this tale and it, it means so much to me. One of the, and I'm not naming names, one of the brick and mortar spaces on campus at, at our undergraduate alma mater um, has a process of vetting co-productions where they have the, the, the organization or individual pitching the project to sit in the middle of a circle and the arts administrators of that theater surround them and lodge questions at them. Mm-hmm. At the time, Liliana was um, on her way towards graduation and she had run an organization called Black Arts Company Drama, which was our Black theater company on campus. And she was handing it over to me that year. And the next year we were gonna do August Wilson's Fences. Mm -hmm. It was also the year that August was passing. It was announced that he had terminal cancer. Mm -hmm. So we didn't know that when we first proposed it, but it became more momentous. And so they told me that I could bring two people into this interview. And, you know, Brandon had been a great early sort of champion of me. And Liliana had groomed me. You know, so the two of them, I said, I'd like the two of you all to come to this interview with me. And so we sat there in a, you know, PWI space, you know, it circled. Yeah. The three of us, three black and brown folks circled by this room of white power, primarily. And they were lodging questions at us like, who is August Wilson? Why should we care about this place? play, who will watch it, who will act in it. And whether those were rhetorical or performative questions or not, they exhibited, at least outwardly, a kind of ignorance about the importance of this man and his work in the year of his slow decline in health Wow. that I thought was socially irresponsible and, and aesthetically demeaning. Mm-hmm. And they, Liliana and Brandon, defended me, defended the play, defended black art in ways masterful and witty that I'll never forget. Mm. And so my life is always one where I feel like I'm standing with Brandon in one hand holding mine and Liliana in the other hand holding mine and marching with them, Mm. you know, that's, that's the image that I have of them. 
But now fast forwarding to Chicago and, and this idea of performance art, I'd always wanted to be a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> I did. You know, I mean, I always, I mean, I grew up in a household where my grandmother trained us to be Renaissance men, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm gendering that term, you know, very specifically we're in, we're in a POC space. So some of y'all know what I'm talking about. These grandmothers that have you go to art class and piano and dance and Mm -hmm. because they want you to have seven skills, the seven skills of man. That was her idea. So I'd always been an interdisciplinary thinker because I, from the time I was three, four years old, you know, I was going to ballet at the YMCA. I was, you know, reciting Langston Hughes and getting notes from her in front of our yellow formica table. I was writing, I was oil painting on Saturdays at Mission Renaissance Fine Art Academy, you know, all of these different things that she was trying to get my brother and me to, to master, classically trained in piano. Mm, okay. You know what I'm saying? So all of that impacts who I am and how I make work. I'm not just writing dialogue-based realism. Yeah. You know, I, I'm writing based on my understanding of how do I use all of these different mechanisms of storytelling in one thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's taken me decades to find the right mix of collaborators and producers that understand that impulse. Yes, you know, that's, um, I'm thinking about being in the theater and with that context, I see it, right? From the dance that occurs um, with Abe and of course the voiceover, the, uh, I don't necessarily want to call it a voiceover, but the audio that also fills the space in those moments of silence. Um, Yes, the, um, the, the monster in her mind. Yes. Yeah, the, 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 the dragon that must be slayed at the end. Yes. You know, that, that voice of self-doubt. And, you know, the stage direction for that dance that you're talking about is just one sentence. It's, they fuck like wild boars. Wow. That's the only stage direction that, and from that, Jobel Medina, Lovell Holder and James and our two actors, Alex Isola and Pete Plazic, built in silence first this sequence. Built this sequence first with no music. The music was written separately and they were just going on the beat of the spirit and the body. And there's one moment, well, there's a couple of moments where and James, who's, you know, really a pioneer of intimacy, particularly intimacy for bodies of color and queer bodies. So I have to say her name, Anne James. And um, at one of our rehearsals, she talked about sensing pheromones. Okay. And how do I consume somebody's pheromones? And so you see all of those moments where they're smelling each other's neck and their armpit and their crotch yeah. and the ass, and it's you know, abstracted, you know. Yes. But it's that idea of the animalistic desire for union, yeah. which supersedes, you know, human sentience, human self knowing, and also supersedes 
I think human thought, it's instinctive. You know, when you're in the room with somebody that truly attracts you, so, hey, y'all know what I'm talking about. Okay. Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Don't sit there and get your tambourine and, and, and your church hat now, honey. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> All of a sudden, your body clicks into place. It sure and does. You know, and you know exactly, even if you ain't never touched nobody before, somehow your body clicks right on into place and you get, and you start following what Tennessee Williams calls them code lights. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I'm talking. You know when Stella come out talk about. I know exactly talk what you're talking about. about. I know it. See them colored lights. I do. Wow, wow, Miss Tennessee Williams, honey, she laid it out for you. You ain't need to do nothing else but read that. If there's one, if I were to name one text mm-hmm. that I think has influenced my sensibility about writing. That would be one of them, Streetcar Named Desire. And not for reasons that you would think, you know, the relationship to being a Southern writer and the lyricism. No, not that. Tennessee was an expressionist. Mm. He was writing for scene direction, for scene, you know, design, for lighting, for sound for choreography. He was thinking about space and place as characters. That was the great education of that play for me. Sure, the other stuff bleeds through as well, you know, I'm sure. But what I was actively seeking inspiration from was his relationship to scenography. Mm. That is what moved and inspired me, you know, and, um, and still, and still does, you know, to this day, I had the opportunity to meet, uh, because I'm working on a new play um, that's set in New Orleans. Can you, I I had, I have a, a, you know, I'll wait for it. Well, I was just going to say real quick that I had the opportunity to meet his biographer, Dr. Kenneth Holditch, who's still with us, and in New Orleans and to be in that house and see all of the artifacts, but also see this man who's, you know, a splitting image of the demeanor and the, the sensibility of, of, of 20th century literati Southern queerness. Mm. It's as close to touching Tennessee himself as we will get in this lifetime just listening to Kenneth Holditch. And it was just, Kenneth said to me when we were speaking, he said, I think you've got it. Mm. That was the only benediction I'll ever need. Mm. That was the only benediction I'll ever need. And I'll carry that all my days. Mm. As if Mother Williams herself came through this man and touched it, touched my spirit. It was magic. But anyway, you wanted to ask me something as I marinated on moments of, 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 uh, of um, 
transcendental healing and wisdom. You're also just so beyond captivating. There hasn't been a moment in, um, in like listening to you that my body has not responded, you know? <laughs> Literally, I, I have chills, I have goosebumps, you know? Mm. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. The questions. Um, I am so I, I want to talk more about how time, mm. how time functions um, in Lavender Men, but also how it functions in your work. Yeah. Because while watching it, it felt to me, it felt like we lived in time and also outside of it. Right. And it was managed and it was executed so well. I there I, I never questioned it. Mm. Noticing, mm. Oh, oh, is this what it feels like to be both in and between worlds? And is this like a piece that I'm feeling? Can and also to see this happen in the theater. Um, you know, obviously thinking about your Voyage LA interview where you said that I like to make weird shit in the theater, but this doesn't feel, it didn't feel weird. It felt perfect. Like, you know, I'm getting chills hearing you speak so highly of it. And, and, and that, that list of compliments is, is really for our director level holder and for our design team, because what happens when you translate a piece from page to, to stage is a myriad of possibilities that could go right or wrong, depending on whose hands the piece lands in. And we are so fortunate to have Lovell directing this piece because he finishes my sentences. I've known him half my life and he knows me in and out and understands how to manifest me Mm-hmm. you know, on the stage in a way that's that's legible and fulfilling, but also surprising at the same time. You know, a lot of those ideas of time stopping and starting and moving are just very simple tricks and sleights of hand. And a lot of it relates, I believe, to the lighting design, yeah. you know, and um, and our lighting designer, Dan, who was so brilliant in working working side by side with Lovell to sort of develop a vocabulary early on of how we slip in and out of different perspectives and time frames, and then grow and then change that as the piece went on. And it's just very simple things that shift, but when they're manifested consistently and clearly, they arrest people. And, 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 the, and they, they make them not question them because it's obvious what's happening. And then once you no longer have questions, you know, then you can start having fun as an audience member. Yeah. That's the point at which you as audience member can be free to really just find your way into the work. And that's what I think we were able to achieve in this production. You know, you'll notice that I speak very pragmatically about production and that's on purpose because I'm a very practical person in reality. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about what are the steps to get us to this desired goal? 
and who do we need to bring in to get there? And I think you have to be that sober-minded when you're trying to sort out complicated and complex thematic elements like what you would see in something like Lavender Man. Yeah. Because if you don't have a strategic sort of firm hand on it, you can easily start spiraling into illegibility. Yeah. You know, to the point where everyone's like, what the fuck is happening? You know? So the way that time works in the piece, I think, I, I think Abe says it best when he has that moment of meditation with Elmer, where he literally stops you know, there they are on the brink of um, of getting the nomination for presidency. And, and he's frightened. He's sad. And he says, success, and a. Elmer says, success makes you morbid. And he says, no, just sit here because this is the quiet before the storm. It will never be like this again. Yeah. And the idea of making time stop to fortify yourself and prepare for the chaos ahead. I think that's sort of the shape of the whole play. And in many ways, that's my life. Because <laughs> what I do is I sit my black ass down. <laughs> Anytime we're, you know, it's, there's so much going on. You know, I'm very fortunate to have all of these interviews with lovely people like you and you know all of these reviews going on but you know what I'm sitting up doing I'm sitting here thinking okay no what time do we do this walk in the morning okay let me clean these dishes and then I gotta call so and so and then let me get about a couple of these emails in you know that that's kind of where my head is and then when I get to the theater and I sit in that chair and Lyric Cross is doing my makeup, fabulous Lyric Cross. And, and um, Letitia Chang is running our lines. It's a ritual. That's me getting here in that space. Because from the moment that that, um, that announcement, the pre-show announcement starts, I'm shooting out of the cannon. And I'm rigorously conjuring this tale for the next 90 minutes and on on a on a weaker day it's a jaunty and and body look at a moment that we hadn't considered in the ways that we have and on a truly great day it's an exorcism mm. you know and everybody's soul gets cleaned I remember the first week when we did it, I got in that chair after the first performance. I couldn't move. I couldn't move. You know, one of my great sheroes is uh, the brilliant Mayfield Brooks. Mm. And I did their piece, Sensoria, an opera strange, which was a memory tribute to um, their, their now passed on a dance partner, Indira, and it sort of tied the life of Indira to whales and, and the impermanence of time and reincarnation. It was a brilliant piece. And it's such a rigorous piece that Mayfield does. And at the end, I just remember Mayfield would sit on the floor in dance space and we'd all just lay hands on them. Mm. 
but Mayfield just had to rest. And I sort of borrowed that practice here. When I get done with this piece, I just sit in a chair for five minutes. I don't do anything. Just to figure out what did I give away? Because you give a piece of yourself. Yeah. And what did I gain? And what have I still got that I can use tomorrow? I got to do my spiritual accounting, you know. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I do. Oh, Lord. Lord have mercy. Mm, mm, mm. Ciao. Wow. It's like time can so easily not, it can so easily be taken from you. Exactly. So easily. Exactly. And so often that's what people do because the great, I think the great currency of the capitalistic world is time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Time and selfhood. Because what, what do you do to conquer somebody? You tell them they ain't worth shit and then you kill them either from outside in or inside out. Yeah. You steal time from them. You have to decide that it's not up for sale. Right? You have to know that they trying to sell you, but you ain't going to be bought. Mm-mm, not today. Not ever. Not ever. Right. You know, and, and, and there's a lot to be said about the beauty of the five years in the recession and the resiliency and the entrepreneurship that that taught me. I, I wouldn't be the artist I am today if I weren't self-producing and hustling for a gig in the ways that I was during that, that era. Yeah. You know, if I had come up, you know, now straight out of undergrad or what, or gotten into grad school, you know, I get up every day and I say, what is there to learn today? Mm. What's next? I never say, Oh, I'm amazing. I'm, you know, I've done it. I've made it. I'm, I'm constantly thinking about what do we learn next? And that's not a reflection on my lack of self-confidence. No, right. it's a matter of, I, I believe that every moment is a teachable moment and we are constantly evolving and, and we're constantly seeking our better and higher self. The minute that we feel we've made it, we're dead. Absolutely. You know, the great deadener of humankind is self-knowing, you know, an ant dies, right? An insect ant. He doesn't have the same feelings about it that we do. Mm-mm. A tree falls dead. We spend our whole lives trying to keep time from moving forward. Yeah. There's a whole industry, billion dollar industry, anti-aging. <laughs> based on you know etc yeah just trying to control that which cannot be controlled i'm i've been a yogi since i was 16 years old steve walther sat us in savasana corpse pose and he said i want to teach you what this pose is really about 
It's about preparing you to die. What does it mean to prepare to die? Nothing. You can't do nothing. <laughs> you just have to accept it. So how can I prepare the mind to silence itself? And how can I prepare the body to pass on? That's the great lesson of Steve Walther. It takes great bravery, great humility, great honor to sit and say, this moment is not for always. And that's okay. That's okay. So what do you do at the moment? You savor the living hell out of it. Not for any aggressive or greedy purpose. Not because, oh, I, I don't know if I'm going to have another. No, 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 no. You're just savoring because you have it. And that's it. And that's it. And you take things one step at a time. Because that's, you know, I know I'm fucking up when I'm doing too many things and ain't nothing getting done. That's at that moment, I say, okay, child, quit. All right. <laughs> do, do nothing. Yeah. Do nothing. Stop everything. Do nothing. Because, honey, you bullshitting yourself right now. Yeah. I don't know what you think is going on, but, honey, boo-boo child, you ain't doing a motherfucking thing besides spinning your wheels. You need to quit. And I stop right there so if i had any advice to our listeners both established and aspiring i would say sometimes deliberately do nothing mm -hmm. I'm, I'm gonna end where i where i began later on I'm, I, I love, you know, people say, oh, what do you love when they're flirting? People sometimes say, oh, long walks on the beach. Yeah. But I actually do like them, you know, because it's a moving meditation for me. Yeah. So I'll go to the beach. I'm here today in El Segundo, California, which is not far from one of the great Black history monuments of beach culture, Bruce's Beach. I'm when I get done here with you and and after my next obligation I'm going to commune with spirit at Bruce's beach I need to hear them our ancestors our people and I'm just going to go there for an hour and just be with them mm. and I'm so excited about it I'm so excited to hear them. I want to share something with you because I know we're um, heading out soon, but I, before knowing that that beach was Bruce's beach, before knowing the history, mm. 
it was the first place that I came to when I first came to Los Angeles. Mm. Every single year that I'd come to Los Angeles after that, every single time that I'd gone, I made a ritual out of going and praying there. Mm. But I tell you, mm. the last time, and I made it a point that when I actually moved to spend a day there and I was like, okay, yeah. we're here. Yeah. All, my, all the prayers, all of the silence, all the times that I've spent on this beach as the moon is rising. Yes, come on, come on. But I, I would not, I would not have been able to make that realization until you just shared. Mm. shared. I wrote a, it's funny. I wrote a piece called Bruce's beach for um, Brooklyn rail, the, you know, the literary magazine. And it was about a young woman who does such a ritual. And, and it ends up having a powerful ancestral healing for her in the current moment, because she, things are delivered to her from spirit that she needs in the moment. You know, and, and you know, interviewers will say, what are you working on next? Uh, many things. But one of the things that I will share is I'm very interested in the relationship between Black folks and the beach. And the water also. And the water. Yes. And that's something, that's a theme. I can't say much more on it, but that's a theme that, that I'm exploring right now. Because I'm from Santa Monica, I am officially a child of the sea. And a lot of people don't know that and they don't realize it, you know, and, and, and Los Angeles is, is a product of real estate apartheid. You know, it's very segregated, even still, you know, but certainly when I was growing up and definitely before. And um, for me, I think from the minute I came out of the womb, I was already disrupting social mores because I was born in a place where before that it was sort of inconceivable for black and brown folks to live and be from the west side of LA which for many years historically you know affluent white area so the fact that I would say I'm from Santa Monica I remember in the 80s and 90s getting strange looks from people because I'm from Santa Monica what what do you mean I was born at St. John's and they couldn't conceive of that world. Yeah. And so I was made to know from birth that just my conception and my nascence already was disruptive. And, and it has been my life's mission and my life's work, I believe, and will continue to be my work to disrupt and then transform what people think is possible in this world. Thank you. Thank you. Ah, you're wonderful. Yeah. I have enjoyed, I have enjoyed this conversation immensely. <laughs>